there. We're on the air and welcome to another podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots, sponsored by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today my guest is Alan Makagak. Alan is a uh, former uh, negotiator for the Newton Land Claim Settlement. He's a residential school survivor, comes from uh, Cambridge Bay, Nunavut. He was also the former president of the Katiknut Inuit Association, former executive director of the Constitutional Forum for Nunavut, for the creation of Nunavut. Alan is also a musician and a songwriter. And, and currently he's an interpreter translator for the Nunavut legislature. Alan also sits on the Nunavut Impact Review Board. He has five children, 14 grandchildren. Hello, Alan, and welcome to Roots and Hoots. I was born in uh, Bathurst Inlet, uh, an old outpost camp uh, just south of uh, Cambridge Bay. Was sent off to residential school at five, five, five years old to Inuvik uh, for uh, elementary and, uh, and junior high school, and then took my high schooling in um, Acacia Hall in uh, Yalnaif. From there, I uh, began to uh, uh, serve the Inuit of Kitakmut uh, upon my graduation from Yalnaif. And that's where uh, I really got my training to work with the communities and and to develop, help them develop uh, what they need from the governments. And that's basically where I started uh, all my work uh, with people. I understand you attended residential school. Uh, can you talk a bit about that, uh, where you attended? And uh, you said Kitsu Hall in Yellowknife. Tell us a little bit about the environment. What was it like uh, going to residential school? Talk a little bit about, you know, uh, your kind of your, your, your routine. Well, the younger days, uh, when I went to uh, Stringer Hall in uh, Inuvik, the uh, residence was a bit more stricter because they knew that we were from all over the, the north and a lot of us could not speak English very well. So the rules and regulations to run uh, residence and to make sure that we don't pass on sicknesses and whatnot to each other. And those were my uh, early, early days and the uh, the hardship that we went through uh, because we could not go home at Christmas time or Easter time because we were too far away to uh, be sent home for uh, two week uh, breaks. So uh, the first 10 years were a bit tough, but uh, the last uh, high school years uh, uh, were a bit more easier because I had moved to Yellowknife, which was uh, a Kecha Hall residence there for high school and uh, vocational students uh, that wanted to uh, finish their schooling. And uh, I was able to go home for Christmas or Easter or some short break. So those were kind of nice to uh, break the ice. But the important thing that we had learn in those days was that uh, we were not to speak um, our own mother tongue because uh, the, the supervisors, the teachers and uh, could not speak our languages so they thought we were talking about them or teasing somebody that we could not speak other languages other than English. And that's where a lot of us sort of began to lose our uh, first language when you speak English all the time, every day, day in, day out, 
uh, at the residence, then uh, you can't forget your language very quickly. But I was fortunate to have uh, parents and grandparents who were strong enough to uh, guide me through to keep my mother tongue intact and uh, for me to be able to uh, continue to understand uh, the language of my parents who were unilingual Inuit, could not speak a word of English. Uh, those were the hardships that we went through, but I think the most important thing is uh, being taken away from uh, your parents at such a young age. Uh, you learn to adapt to be by yourself. You learn to work by yourself. And and at the same time, where you can, you learn to hang around with uh, buddies that, that you trust and uh, uh, other kids that you can learn from from other cultures because we had the residents, both residents, we had uh, both Inuit, Dene, Métis, and uh, uh, Northern residents uh, who had moved to the North, uh, students that were from all different cultures. And uh, I think that's where uh, I began to build a strong trust in um, other cultures uh, other than my own. Yeah, how was the uh, environment in terms of talking about like uh, the residence environment? I know that when I went to residential school, it was all Cree, all Cree kids. And yours is different. You uh, were in an environment where in a residence where there were Métis and, and Dene First Nations children, and you're an Inuk. So how was that? Was that difficult? Was there uh, was there any, like, you know, some schools, a lot of bullying? Did any of that stuff go on there? I, th I think uh, for some of the weaker students who were easily uh, picked on by others in a ways, I think uh, they had the hardest time adapting to finding friends and, and, and classmates that they can hang around with like I did. Like sports was my grace where I played a lot of sports just to uh, keep myself out of study periods and to see if I can continue to improve myself in, a, in, in sports that were becoming a big part of our schooling, especially if you wanted to travel outside of your communities to attend basketball tournaments, soccer tournaments, or other uh, Arctic winter games, Canada winter games, summer games, those kinds of events, uh, we wanted to get involved in those. And we had a chance to uh, be involved in uh, teams if we wanted to uh, be involved in traveling with other uh, athletes to other uh, events. I think that was the teaching ground for me is uh, that our superintendent of our residence um, at uh, Stringer Hall, mostly in Inuvik, had very strong uh, religious background, uh, even though um, uh, he was a former uh, a World War II uh, veteran. Uh, he uh, taught a lot of us to work together, the Inuit, the Dene, the Métis, and the, and the white kids uh, who were uh, attending the residence with us to, to be able to work together, to be able to function together, and to not go against each other just because we were from different cultures. But I think that was a fortunate point for those of us who went to the Anglican residence as compared to what we have heard from the uh, Roman Catholic uh, residential uh, school. So 
from that, I think we were fortunate to be able to have that uh, kind of gathering that superintendents of schools insisted that we work together to survive our year. I know uh, sports uh, in these residential schools was really uh, a form of escape for many of us. It's lucky, I guess it's fortunate that we had sports and give us an opportunity to to travel and and, uh, see other schools, residences, and meet other people. Your diet must have changed uh, quite a bit uh, going to residential school. How did you find, how did you cope with eating a totally different type of food? It was uh, a bit uh, hard to adapt to the diet that uh, we we had been given, uh, basically because there were not too many fresh produce or not too many fresh meats because that uh, be all flown in or uh, come up on the annual sea lift to uh, Inuvik to the north, especially where there are not that many country food to begin with at the residence uh, we were attending. So we had a lot of uh, prepared foods that were packages that uh, we were getting used to that we thought were the real thing until we graduated from schools that we found out that there was real milk and there was real meat and there was real potatoes rather than uh, man-made packages that we were so used to at the residence just because uh, uh, the residence was not, uh, as I mentioned, not getting many fresh produce or uh, fresh meats to service uh, healthy meals. And I think that's where a lot of us got sort of got lean and mean and uh, sort of uh, what our parents called unhealthy because we weren't fat like them and healthy uh, from eating country food all the time. But I think we sort of adapt to that meal quickly uh, as uh, we all uh, got into the western style food that uh, we're so familiar with today yeah just a clarification country food uh, when you say country food you're talking about fish and uh, and caribou and that sort of stuff right that's right we were uh, not served any caribou moose meat or uh, char or uh, white fish that other community members uh, around Inuvik were enjoying every day. We were uh, served up prepackaged foods all the time. What about discipline uh, when children got into trouble? If we were to uh, get into a fight with another student over something, then you were both confined to barracks, uh, so-called sea beat, for, for a week. You you go to you get up you go have your break your meals and then you go to school and you go right back to your uh, residence after school uh, rather than being able to play out with uh, your other uh, classmates and schoolmates or because the residences were uh, separated into girls and boys section uh, we I could not see my sisters uh, for for a couple of weeks because um, I was uh, confined to barracks and I could not visit or go out and uh, uh, do any normal stuff the kids were used to. There were not that many uh, students sent home, especially the violent ones, I think, were sort of 
uh, kept in isolation to work with them uh, individually, to work out their anger and to work out their frustration that they that they were feeling at the time that uh, they were acting out their aggression to other students and to supervisors and teachers. Uh, a lot of that uh, was happening, and and certainly sometimes you hear uh, schoolmates or classmates passing away, and you wonder what those deaths were from. But we never heard anything from their death exactly what happened uh, just because uh, I think the residents wanted to make sure that we did not get too sad about the uh, situation or to get too homesick to uh, not be able to do our schoolwork anymore. So those are kinds of things that uh, we were disciplined with and uh, if we were to talk our own language in classroom we were either sent back to our residence or we were sent to uh, what they call CB room, the compound room where uh, students that need to be disciplined uh, had to uh, spend some time uh, in the afternoons or daytime thing. Was there any uh, religious teachings in, in the residential school that you attended? Uh, not at the school, uh, but the uh, residence itself, where we stayed at Stringer Hall, we had chapel service every night to go through the Bible to, for those of us who were not ordained into the Christian world, we were given a lot of opportunities to uh, attend Bible schools, to attend uh, religious classes, and there would be uh, two compulsory church uh, sessions on Sunday, one in the morning and one in the evening, so that those were all the uh, religious rituals that we went through uh, uh, during our uh, early early school years. But in our high school, those, those parts were not compulsory. We did not have to attend any of the residence uh, or religious classes uh, after that. So... Uh, we were fortunate to be able to not have religion shoved down our throats all the time, especially if we had already spent the first 10 years of our young lives learning the Bible in and out, just because uh, that was the, the theme of our assimilation process to the uh, Christian, Christian world. And I think that uh, those were the teachings that were uh, given to us during our young days. You know, you're uh, part of the Nunavut Impact Review Board, the board that's created. Was it created by the Nunavut Land Claims Settlement, or was this created by the uh, Nunavut government? The uh, Institution of Public Governments, which uh, Nunavut Impact Review Board is one of, is created under the uh, Nunavut Land Claims Agreement to protect our lands, resources, environments, and uh, waters, and our wildlife. We work alongside other uh, institutions of public government, such as the Planning Commission, the Water Board, the Nunavut Wildlife Management Board, Surface Rights Tribunal. Uh, those institutions look after all the uh, uh, environmental regulatory uh, agencies uh, for Nunavut uh, under our land claims agreement that, um, that works. Uh, to uh, maintain the stability of environment uh, 
for uh, long-term uh, benefit of our uh, Inuit because you have to understand that 40% of our population is are still a full-time hunter-gatherer society. And we have to maintain that the environment, the lands and resources uh, be kept clean to ensure that the wildlife continues to return upon their um, uh, annual cycle or annual uh, migration. And uh, those are the uh, kinds of uh, issues that we are dealing with, including uh, trying to grapple with climate change issue. The uh, climate change uh, is fast becoming a big norm up north where the seasons are in some areas getting longer, in some areas are getting shorter. So we have to make sure that uh, the climate um, continues to uh, be in our favor for our harvesters and our hunter-gatherers. You come from the uh, high Arctic region of Canada. Speaking of climate change, uh, uh, it's affecting the world and our own environment today. How is this impacting the Arctic and the lifestyle there? One thing that we are starting to notice is that our uh, winters are getting much more colder and it seems to be uh, much more bitter ice, uh, crystal cold, more than it usually has in the past. We recognize that the climate is changing fast and our uh, summers are getting longer. Uh, certainly our springs are uh, getting more wilder in terms of the weather and the breakup of our ice and the rivers and lakes and our oceans, they're becoming more unpredictable. And our fall sessions, are the cold seems to be taking a little bit longer to move from uh, the summer to the winter. Uh, so the ice is not getting thick enough uh, or fast enough for our harvesters to be able to travel out on the land. So we are losing uh, machines. We are losing human lives to some of these ice conditions that are changing so fast that our harvesters have to make sure that they are uh, working very closely with our elders to know that um, these climate changes can affect our harvesting practices and our normal out-on-the-land travels. So these are the kinds of things that we are trying to grapple with and to be able to put into legislation so that our, our people know exactly what can help them in terms of harvesting rates that they have um, been able to retain in their land claims agreement and to be able to use the land for, the, for those purposes as much as possible. I understand also that there's been a decline in the population of caribou, especially in the Eastern Arctic. There's also debate, I guess you could say, about the decline in the polar bears population. What's your opinion on this and other, how is climate change affecting populations of the various animal species? In terms of the land animals, we are starting to notice, especially in caribou and muskox, that they are beginning to get a lot more diseases, uh, such as brucellosis, uh, trichinosis, and, 
and other illnesses that they never had before just because uh, the climate is uh, warming up so fast with them that certain uh, different kinds of bugs that uh, never grew up north before are starting to be found amongst our animals that we catch. And uh, we are starting to get concerned that uh, more of the uh, climate changes that are, are going to affect uh, the animals that we depend on today are also increasing by uh, other species of animals that never went to the Arctic coast before, such as grizzly bears, uh, moose, uh, beaver, uh, sharks, all, all of those um Different species of animals are starting to pop up now in the Arctic coast. I, I think those are very dangerous to uh, the existing population just because we are very cognizant of species of uh, invasion that uh, can easily happen, especially with our Arctic char. If we get too much salmon in our rivers, they are much more vicious than Arctic char, so they can change the way the char very quickly if, if we allow salmon to grow uh, in, in population quickly up north. Those are the specialty uh, foods that we we say uh, that uh, we notice that the changing diets of our, our of our uh, land animals also is starting to um, increase uh, some of the population and decreasing some of the population just because it varies on how the survival of these animals can take uh, this climate change. What about the uh, bird species? I know like a lot of birds, like thousands of birds migrate to the Arctic every year. Uh, have you noticed any difference in numbers or species of uh, birds, migratory birds? They fluctuate. We noticed uh, in the last uh, 20 years that we have been studying um, migratory birds for uh, harvesting uh, reasons. We noticed that the different variety of geese populations are certainly increasing to such large numbers that uh, Inuit harvesters are getting a bit worried that they may they may eat out all the uh, vegetation uh, with the short summer stay that they come up here for. Um, so uh, they are beginning to uh, advise us to harvest geese as much as possible to keep the population stable and to be able to uh, uh, maintain the uh, the population so that we don't have an explosion uh, such as we've had in the past where they got out of control and uh, just too many uh, flocks were flying into a certain area that they were eating out all the, all the grasslands and all marshy areas that uh, were normally used by other birds and species that uh, depend on those uh, marshes and whatnot. So in, in that area, I think the bird population is healthy. Uh, I think we are not too concerned about uh, the migratory uh, bird uh, population, but as they are continuing to increase and uh, more of these species are uh, beginning to arrive, uh, different kinds of diets that the Inuit uh, are beginning to uh, taste in their uh, food. What about the quotas on uh, caribou? You come from uh, kind of the western part of Una with the high Arctic region, Cambridge Bay. Do you have, I know there's a lot of caribou out that way. 
Do you have uh, quotas on caribou, uh, polar bear, and muskox? Uh, the uh, only uh, caribou herd that we have under a quota at the moment is the is the Bathurst Inland herd because we we share uh, that uh, big herd uh, with our Dene uh, uh, friends to the south of us in, in the uh, Northwest Territories. Uh, it's the same species that migrates down to. Uh, uh, northern Saskatchewan, northern um, Alberta in the wintertime and migrates up to our coast in summertime. We put that on a quota because when uh, we used to have such large populations, such as 300,000 on our herd dropping down to 90,000 in a couple of years, then you have to wonder what is going on. So we brought in some caribou biologists to do a complete study on what was happening. Uh, one theory was that a lot of sicknesses were happening amongst uh, some of the caribou uh, because of new uh, bugs arriving up to the north. And also the changing of the uh, rivers uh, during their migration. Sometimes there's just too much water where they usually cross. Uh, so uh, we've had mass caribou deaths uh, in some areas where we the harvesters uh, in certain areas have found a large numbers of caribou dying uh, along the rivers just because the river systems were a bit too fast and hard at the moment or uh, just too too deep for them to be able to cross the rivers that they usually uh, migrate through. The uh, polar bear, we now have a healthy quota in uh, every region uh, just because the polar bear population is healthy, even though they are beginning to lose a lot of ice because of the climate change, uh, we are starting to notice that uh, a lot of polar bear are beginning to uh, hang out at the garbage dumps and uh, and uh, some of the camping areas where uh, people leave their uh, uh, harvest. We also have uh, new quota systems for animals that we never had before, such as beluga in uh, in the western Khitangmut, uh, western Nunavut. We've never had uh, beluga or narwhals before, so we are beginning to uh, include those uh, in our uh, harvest practices. And the other uh, areas that we've never had uh, quota or harvesting uh, practices with are uh, grizzly bears, black bears, and moose. So uh, we're beginning to get our wildlife management boards in various regions to begin to address some of those harvesting practices that they can allow their local harvesters uh, to enjoy. Excellent, Alan. I've been uh, talking to Alan Makarak. Uh, he's an Inuk from the western part of Nunavut, a place called Cambridge Bay. Alan is a member of the NERB for the Nunavut Impact Review Board. Alan, you're also a musician. Uh, let's kind of gear down here a little bit and talk about something uh, something else. We're getting close to the end of this podcast, so just a couple of more things. Kind of interested in your, your, you're a musician. Uh, you play guitar, you sing songs, you write songs. How, did, uh, how long have you been doing this? When did you start doing this? When I was going to uh, Inuvik, uh, there were a lot of uh, young young guys that uh, brought their own guitars or their own instruments, like the fiddle, the banjo, uh, um, mandolin, whatnot. So 
we would exchange music and just practice around with a couple of guys that were interested in music, played in the local uh, uh, high school band just to make ends meet, just because I couldn't work in garages. Uh, I, have no, I have no desire to be a mechanic or anything. So I had to learn how to make quick money to, uh, to supplement my weekly uh, allowance that I was getting from the resident. So uh, that helped me through to uh, make extra money, uh, play with a local uh, uh, band that needed a bass player or rhythm guitars just to learn uh, the tricks of how bands work together. And when I graduated from high school, I started writing my own stuff to help me uh, strengthen my Inuit language because I, I was very weak in... Uh, being able to speak my Inuit language uh, just because uh, I was brought up in the English world all my life uh, from the time I was five years old till I was an adult. So I started writing songs in Inuit, uh, my uh, local dialect, to uh, help me uh, preserve my language and to strengthen my language on communication with the elders on, on different songs, formats that I... Uh, started writing on uh, a lot of the music is about traveling out on the land uh, and about harvesting and and being with family uh, those were the kinds of uh, music that i was playing um, of course when you're in high school you're in a rock and roll band but when you're a little older you start mellowing out to uh, folk blues or different formats that uh, i've doing a lot of uh, folk uh, blues stuff so um, that's sort of sort of my uh, area of music uh, the last part of our podcast uh, roots and hoots is the hoots part and uh, usually we ask you know people uh, who's meaning something funny a joke or a story or I know that uh, you you're a singer a songwriter uh, maybe you have a uh, a tune play a few bars. Uh, no, I uh, I'm usually a boring person. I I, <laughs> I, um, I take things uh, a bit too seriously, according to my grandmother. Uh, that I totally remember her telling me not to worry so much and not to uh, uh, concern myself too much around the world to be enjoy life. Uh, but that's the way I was brought up, and uh, I don't have any. Uh, Antidotes about uh, my past or uh, anything exciting exciting ever happened in my in my past just because I've been uh, working all my life to uh, help my people and to uh, and to put food on the table. But one of the things that I always uh, enjoyed is um, trading uh, uh, the different dialects of the Inuit language that we have in Nunavut. We have 18 different dialects in Nunavut, and we have uh, four main dialects that we uh, use during uh, meetings and conferences. So those are all exchanges of ideas that uh, we've been sharing with other Inuit from outside our communities and outside our regions who speak uh, other dialects of Inuit uh, and we exchange a lot of our music and we certainly exchange a lot of ideas on how to uh, look after ourselves and to maintain a strong family uh, unity that we were so well to uh, uh, 
uh, to have amongst our people, and that Inuit are always looking after each other to to help each other to move along. And I think that those are the kinds of things that I've always been working to better myself, to to better uh, my fellow Inuit. Excellent. Thank you very much, Alan, for your time. Uh, we've been talking to Alan Makagak, originally from Cambridge Bay in Nunavut. Uh, Alan, I want to thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the time and really, really good talking to you. And uh, you have so much knowledge, so much uh, abilities, uh, you know, being an interpreter for a long time, interpreter, translator. And uh, the work that you continue to do for your people is, uh, is admirable. And I, want you, I really want to thank you very much for, for taking the time to do this. Thank you very much, uh, you too. Merci. Thank you. Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.